0: not in polar bear habitat, but every once in a while, they will travel from one site to another and they'll come through our area. And so two springs ago, we saw a a mom and two cubs. One of the quirks of going to the Arctic, you're squeezing in as much as you can in, in a short amount of time that you have available. And in this particular instance, we were filtering in our lab hut water samples we'd collected and it must have been one or two in the morning and one of the students stepped out and and was like oh there's a polar bear and I thought she was you know having a joke and and we stepped out and sure enough there was a polar bear just kind of coming towards camp and so we we roused the others that were that had already gone to bed and but yeah there was enough of us that the bear wasn't really interested in, in coming in too close. My name is Igor Lenher and I'm an assistant professor in the department of geography here at UTM. There's a lot of push to do community consultation and, and do science that is also relevant to, to northern people and Inuit people. And a lot of the contaminant work that we do, we do in the Arctic is certainly motivated by that. We've done some projects where we've set up monitoring programs at, at various communities where local people will go out and, and take, for example, seawater samples that they'll ship down south that we can then use to, to build a better record or understanding of how ocean currents are moving, you know, not just Mercury, but also some of my collaborators at at Environment Canada look at. But trying to involve more people and and trying to to address questions that are relevant to to Inuit and and Northern people is also, I think, another way that we can try to have a bit more of an impact, that it's not just purely academic and, and something that only other scientists will care about.
1: Arctic Anecdotes... On today's episode of the View to the You podcast, which has come out in honour of Earth Day, April 22, 2019, we will learn more about climate change and its effects on aquatic ecosystems and Indigenous populations with Professor Igor Lenher. We also get insight on a few other topics that relate to his work, including how he got interested in this area of research in the first place, the importance of experiential education and connecting with the natural environment, and what it's like being up in the Arctic from someone who has visited there many times over the last 15 years. With this new third season of The View to the U, highlighting UTM's global perspectives, Igor discusses his northern research, and though he has seen dramatic changes to the stunning Lake Hazen landscape where he conducts a good portion of his work, spoiler alert, the picture isn't all doom and gloom. Hello and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DiMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Igor Lenher is an assistant professor in the Department of Geography at U of T Mississauga, where he has been on faculty since 2014. Prior to coming to UTM, he was the W. Garfield Weston Postdoctoral Fellow in Northern Research in the Department of Earth and Environmental Sciences at the University of Waterloo. His research seeks to understand the impacts of environmental stressors, such as contaminants and climate change on aquatic ecosystems, and he focuses primarily on the Arctic and boreal ecoregions. His current projects include studying how the recent accelerated melting of glaciers and lake ice has impacted carbon cycling and mercury bioaccumulation in these northern regions. So I understand that your research broadly focuses on humans' impact on the natural world we live in, and this is taken from your website that you investigate the impacts of environmental stressors and climate change on aquatic ecosystems, focusing primarily on the Arctic and boreal regions, or eco-regions. And I was wondering if you could tell me a bit about this line of your research, why you focus on these regions, and perhaps some examples of current projects you are working on, and also any collaborations that you might want to mention.
0: Just from my personal history, so I spent a number of years in my childhood growing up in the Yukon, uh, so in, in, in northwestern Canada. And so from that sense... I, I guess I have a bit of a, of a geographical bias of being interested in, in Northern landscapes. And from a scientific perspective as well, if you're interested in, in issues that pertain to climate change or or some of these other things, that, um, so environmental stressors encompass things like contaminants and pollutants and, and climate change. And so if you're interested in those kinds of topics, Arctic regions and Northern Canada are, are really very relevant to those issues because uh, climate change is most pronounced in the Arctic. It's warming at a greater pace than the rest of the world, and issues that pertain to contaminants are also very relevant there because of uh, long-range transport of pollutants, so pollutants that are emitted down south end up being transported uh, very long distances. And end up being deposited in in northern landscapes where they can enter the the food chain. And and the concern there is that because there's also more uh, Indigenous people and more people that live off the land that are eating the fish or harvesting berries or eating seals, etc., they're getting exposed to contaminants at a greater rate than people in the South would. Paradoxically, even though They live in a relatively pristine environment where we don't expect to see emissions of pollutants and and other uh, harmful substances. So really, yeah, the answer to that question is is twofold. I I have a bit of a a preference for uh, remote places personally, and uh, like I said, because of of, uh, maybe growing up in northern Canada, but also from a scientific point of view, these are really good places to go and, and do the kind of work that I'm interested in carrying out as well. But a lot of my work is really more focused on looking at freshwater ecosystems at the moment. And so in terms of what we're seeing uh, climate change do to these kinds of, again, what we think of as as remote and pristine ecosystems that are largely uh, unimpacted or untouched by by humans uh, include things like, you know, the obviously warming, but but the questions that we're, we're trying to answer is what impact does that warming cause? And, and really, the ramifications are numerous and sometimes unexpected. So I'll give you an example. So some of the work that we've done in, in the past few years, and this is work that's been carried out in collaboration with other uh, researchers at uh, University of Alberta and Waterloo and, and Queen's University. So I've been fortunate enough to work with quite a diverse team of experts as well on some of these issues. And we've, we've tried to take a whole regional, whole watershed approach where we look at what does the warming do to a typical Arctic ecosystem. And so obviously some of the things include things that we hear about all the time like permafrost thaw and warming of, of ground temperatures and air temperatures and also the impact that it has on glaciers. And we see glaciers that for decades now have been in a phase of growth have recently in the, in the last you know 10-15 years have flipped to now being in a state of net melt or receding. And So the lake that we're looking at called Lake Hazen in northern Ellesmere Island is a large part of the region is covered by glaciers and a lot of the waters that, that feed into the lake are glacier fed. And so what we're seeing with an increase in, in warming, the increased rate of melt of glaciers is much larger inputs of, of water into the lake, so rising lake levels, rising water flow through all the rivers, which increases erosion, has dumped a lot of sediment into the lake as well. And that sediment brings along other things with it, including in some cases nutrients that you know on the surface may be positive for helping biological organisms grow within the lake, but also have brought in uh, increased levels of contaminants like mercury that are being retransported from terrestrial environments now entering the aquatic environment where they can get into the food chain and the food web. And some of the maybe less expected impacts have included sort of if you change water quality, what kind of impacts does it have on fish? And so if we're thinking about these glacier-fed rivers that for a long time were sort of not quite peaceful little streams, but certainly small rivers that have now become rivers that are much bigger and are carving out new river channels and eroding a lot of material and dumping a lot of of sediment into the lake it's making the waters a lot more turbid and the main species of fish or the only species of fish that, that live there in, in the lake is, is Arctic char, which is also a very culturally relevant fish species for Inuit people in terms of as an impo- being an important country food. And Arctic char are a visual predator, which means they use their eyesight to capture insect prey and larvae. And so as the waters become more turbid, there's a risk that their ability to hunt for their prey is being impacted. And then there's some hints that we see this happening in terms of body size of the fish. We're measuring something that's almost akin to body mass index and they're getting relatively skinnier. And so that's maybe a less a, an impact of climate change that is less easily predicted or that we don't hear about as often. The ramifications are a lot more diverse and complex than that. They go from, you know, an, an, a change in the physical environment has impacted the chemical and biological components of the ecosystem as well and um, to kind of give you also a bit of perspective on these kinds of things that i'm talking about lake hazen is located in, in a national park and even though it doesn't get a whole lot of visitors and it's nothing you know like bam for jasper there are still some groups that come every year to do guided hikes and, and do you know like two week treks across the park and when i first started working there in 2005 There used to be a very popular hike that would go from Lake Hazen Camp, where we do our work, to Tancree Fjord, which is the main warden station. And and the hike would take in a neighborhood of 10 days to two weeks, and it would include fording a large number of rivers that are glacier-fed. And now it's been a number of years since anyone has done that hike because the rivers are no longer fordable. The flow of the, of the water in these rivers has gotten so big, it's no longer safe to cross them by fording. So in the space of, you know, 10, 15 years, it's not just us having to measure scientific data to notice change, it's visible in the landscape. So we camp on the beach at Lake Hazen where we set up our tents. And, and if you look out from our tents towards the, the middle of the lake, there's a large island. It's actually the, the one here that I have a painting of in my office. And it's called John's Island. And and the nose of it on, on the end there has been gradually receding as well over time because of, uh, again, Uh, warming and so uh, there's not a lot of plant material holding that in place so with with warming and there's more erosion there's also been a lot of loss of ice cover on the lake during the summer season and so just even going back every year to the same spot and on the same beach I can see over time sort of John's Island shrinking so there's lots of noticeable changes and some changes that we see require us to look a lot more closely, you know, kind of literally look under the microscope to to spot some of these changes. And so I mentioned that for some of this work, we collaborate with uh, researchers at Queen's University, including Dr. John Small, who's a a paleolimnologist. And together we've looked at how microscopic algal remains in in sediments at the bottom of lake have changed over time. So we can sample the mud at the bottom of the lake essentially and take a core of that bottom mud and the mud gets deposited in in layers over time so that at the surface we're looking at very recent materials and as you go deeper into the sediment or into the mud it's almost like flipping through the pages of a history book right and so we get to observe materials that are progressively older And we can look at these uh, microscopic algal remains. So some of these algae have uh, cell walls that are made of silica, so similar to glass, and they're relatively well preserved for long periods of time, centuries to longer uh, to millennial uh, time scales. And we can look at how the species that make up these microfossils uh, have evolved through time. And so if we go back and look at Lake Hazen, how it was 50 to 100 years ago, we notice a few things so first of all if we go back at least 100 years we see very few of these algal remains because the growing season was really short. Summers tend to be relatively cool, and there just wasn't a lot of opportunity for algae to thrive in this lake. And then if we fast forward maybe 50 years, then we see a lot more of these microfossils, but they're all of a particular kind of algae that lives in the shallow waters. And in Arctic lakes, the reason why we see that is because if you, you know, for people that have a cottage on a lake in in Ontario, and if they think about sort of the transition between winter and summer, and how ice on the lake usually starts to thaw, it thaws from the shore towards the center. So you, so the first stage of, of lake ice melt is you get this sort of moat along the, the shoreline. And for a long period of time at Lake Hazen, that was the only real open water environment there was. And so a lot of these species that we saw going back again 50 years or, or more, these species that live in these near shore environments, in the shallow waters, and they live just at the surface of the mud at the bottom of the lake so only in a few meters of water so they can get enough light to carry out photosynthesis and then if you fast forward to present day we see all of a sudden somewhere around 15 years ago the proliferation of these species are actually adapted for living out in the middle of the lake that are free floating in the water column and and that can exist and not just that attached in the shallow mud near shore but that live you know free floating in the water column of the lake and they are only able to exist now because of the disappearance of lake ice over the summer. So there's now... Uh, sufficient open water and and, and a long enough growing season in in the middle of the lake that light can penetrate. And that kind of habitat wasn't present in Lake Hazen 50 years ago. Some of the changes are very obvious to people, including myself, but also many of the parks people that have worked there for a long period of time. And and obviously, you know, Inuit people who have a long oral tradition of understanding their land and, and how things have changed. And so some of these changes are very obvious to the naked eye. And some of them require, like I said, literally to look under the microscope to get a little bit of a closer look at, at what these changes entail. And
1: you said some of the fish are smaller than what they used to be. How are you measuring that?
0: Right. So, so we've kind of worked on different timescales. So when we did this particular study on Lake and we tried to combine as many data sets as, as we could. And some of them, you know, using things, techniques like sediment cores or what we would call, you know, paleolimnology techniques. So paleolimnology. You know, looking back in time. That allows us to look back a couple centuries. Some of the data that we have is just observation that's reliant on just how long have scientists been going to the high Arctic to collect field measurements. And and obviously those data sets are a little bit shorter, so our fish data set doesn't go back nearly as far, but it still goes back a, a few decades. And it highlights the importance of having people on the ground doing this kind of work, because. While we can track certain changes, like the algae with, that leave a fossil remain behind that we can look at and that can provide us information for the fish, we can't do that. So we have to have people that are physically capturing the fish and and measuring their length and their weight to record that data. And so a lot of the data that we rely on is collected, you know, by people on the ground doing this work, going up there, you know, every summer or every couple of years to revisit these data sets and create these really valuable long long. long term data sets that on their own, if you only collect these data for two, three years are informative but not as informative and the real value to these really becomes apparent once you you are able to construct these longer data sets that allow you to look for change through time and so the fish is an example of that. Some of the the river discharge data is also the result of a gauging station that's been set up there uh, and we have some data but of course the remoteness of the site means that if a sensor goes down it's not until next summer that somebody can go and replace it and then the other approach to, to tackling some of these questions is to use models. And so one of the collaborators that that we work with on this project is a scientist with NASA in California, and uh, he has constructed a model that looks at glacier melt as a function of climate variables. And so he's calibrated this model for modern time periods. And so we know that it reproduces melt rate because the predicted glacier melt matches well with the river discharge data that we have that's draining out of Lake Hazen. And so we know the model performs well. And then so what he did was then use input of older meteorological data to go back and estimate what glacial melt was in the 80s and 70s and 60s, and then now look at that change over time, sort of what has happened to melt rates of glaciers in the area from the 60s to present. And so, so we use a combination of either observational underground data, of models and in some cases of paleo technique, that are archiving hints about the environment and what it was like 100 or 200 or 300 years ago.
1: I know you did touch on this a little bit already. There's this great video on your website and you talk about methylmercury, which again is another area I know that you touch on contaminants. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what methylmercury is and what these contaminants do to the environment.
0: Sure, absolutely. So people are probably pretty familiar with the idea of mercury as being sort of a, a toxic pollutant, and we use the term mercury very generally. If you hear about mercury in the news, we don't usually talk about methyl mercury specifically. But the reason why I focus on methyl mercury is there's many different chemical forms of mercury that exist in the environment and methylmercury is the toxic form that has the ability to get into the food chain and, and get bioaccumulated in, in living organisms and gets passed on from prey to predator and, and humans being at the top of the food chain were actually integrating all the contaminants that enter into the very bottom of the food chain and and they get funneled up to us. And so as you go up the food chain with each level in the food chain, contaminant concentrations tend to increase because of something called biomagnification. And mercury is one of those pollutants that is biomagnified, meaning that when you go from algae to um, zooplankton, so there's these small kind of shrimp-like invertebrates, you increase the levels of, of methyl mercury and then you go into fish and that gets even higher. And then the people eat the fish and so the methyl mercury gets even higher. And as an example of Quote unquote power of biomagnification. When people hear that we're concerned about methylmercury in, in Arctic ecosystems, they always ask, is it safe to drink the water? And we say, well, yeah, we, you know, we will, as I mentioned, we camp on the shores of, of Lake Hazen and that's our source of drinking water. And the water there is so clean, we'll dip our water ball into the lake and drink it directly. And even though there is mercury present there, it's present at infinitesimally small concentrations. But if you were to then measure, uh, let's say, mercury in polar bear fur or, you know, some of these organisms at the top of the food chain, the mercury has become at least a million fold more concentrated because of biomagnification. And so, we focus, or I focus a lot on methylmercury because, again, that's the toxic form of mercury that gets into the food chain and becomes biomagnified. And it really, when we're concerned about human health impacts that pertain to mercury, what we're actually concerned about is methyl mercury. So it just happens to be a particular chemical form of mercury where the mercury has been attached to a carbon molecule, and that gives it certain properties that make it more easily retained within biological tissue. So methylmercury toxicity, we've known about that for quite a long time because of well-known incidents like the Minamata Bay disaster. So in this case, it's a very specific example, but where a local industrial facility was discharging effluent that contained high levels of methylmercury uh, because they were using mercury as a catalyst in their industrial process into a local bay, which was also used uh, intensively by local fishermen and providing food for the town and because of this large input of methylmercury a lot of the local people were exposed to uh, very high doses and and we saw sort of the, the impacts of acute methylmercury exposure which include you know things like loss of fine motor skills and tremors and methylmercury is primarily a neurotoxin so it attacks the brain and the nervous system. That's a very extreme example because it was so extreme it really brought the issue forward and made us aware of the potential risks of methylmercury for you know the vast majority of people globally and certainly in Canada There isn't much concern. There's a few at-risk populations, and they tend to be very young children and pregnant women because you can have transfer of mercury in the womb to the fetus. And at a time when the nervous system is developing and growing so rapidly, that's when relatively lower levels of methylmercury can have an impact. We devote a lot of attention to understanding mercury, how it is emitted from human activities and so we know things like cold fire power plants release mercury to the atmosphere. And because mercury has these really intriguing properties, it can remain volatile and stable in the atmosphere for six months and even longer. And that's why we end up seeing elevated mercury in the Arctic, because it can be emitted at lower latitudes and remain in the atmosphere long enough that atmospheric currents will bring and deliver that mercury to the Arctic. And so, That's why we're we're interested in looking at mercury in the Arctic. But we're also interested because if you were to compare blood mercury concentrations of the average Canadian living at southern latitudes, and as we often hear, most of the Canadian population lives really close to the U.S. border, etc., our blood mercury levels down here tend to be lower than the blood mercury level of indigenous and Inuit people in the north. And part of that, again, is because of the importance of traditional country foods To their diets. And so whenever I talk about this, I always want to stress that we're never advising people not to eat traditional country foods because of the numerous, not only nutritional benefits, but also because of the cultural importance of traditional country foods. But they are a vessel that result in greater contaminant exposure to, in northern populations compared to, to people in the south. You say, you know, if you're concerned about your exposure or if you're one of those, you know, potentially at-risk populations, So then there's some, some smart choices you can make to minimize your, your exposure, and that's true for everyone. But again, if we think about the alternatives, in a lot of northern communities, they don't have grocery stores in the same way that we think of. They usually will have kind of a general store that will carry everything from, you know, snowmobile oil to clothing to food. And most of the food that is delivered to Arctic communities comes once a year on the sea lift in the forms of dry goods and fresh produce is scarce because it's all flown in and by the time it gets there it tends to not be that fresh anyways and it's just prohibitively expensive the alternatives to country foods are usually not great they usually end up being highly processed. As I say, we always stress that, you know, things like eating Arctic char, which have great source of uh, omega-3 fatty acids are gonna be healthier, even though you're you're taking in some contaminants, but the benefits outweigh the risks. And even also from a cultural perspective, preserving the traditional way of life, going out on the land and being physically active as well. There's tremendous benefits to, to traditional country foods that have to be taken into account when we look at contaminants as well
1: there any findings, though, that you've come across over the course of your work that you really were surprised by?
0: Oh, that's a good question. But I think sometimes the surprise is the rate at which things are occurring or the magnitude at which things are occurring. So I explained that, you know, with some of the increased flow in these glacial fed rivers and all the erosion that's occurring, what we saw was a 10 time increase in uh, sediment delivery, which okay. is a lot. Science is always driven by hypotheses. So you always are making an educated, not necessarily a guess, but you have an idea of what may be occurring and you're trying to see if that's true, if that's supported by by your observations and and your data. And and so I don't want to say that everything was a surprise, but again, I think sometimes the scale of the impact or the rate at which things were changing uh, is a little bit surprising. I guess one of the things that environmental scientists are often accused of is we're all like doom and gloom, right? And we're very good at pointing out like what things we've destroyed or are negatively impacting and it's easy to get lost in that and not convey sort of a a reason for optimism, which I think is very important for action to take place as well. You want to show that taking action will work, will reap benefits. And so in the context of mercury pollution in the Arctic, we are certainly are seeing reasons for optimism. And mercury emissions will obviously vary uh, regionally between different continents, but uh, places like Europe have seen reduced emissions in the past couple decades, and that's translated into populations of either reindeer or various fish populations that are now seeing mercury levels that are going back down. And so it's showing the value of cutting, emissions there are benefits and and ecosystems will recover and and I think that's a very powerful message and along those lines the Minamata Convention on Mercury has come into force in 2017 and that's a UN agreement that 128 countries have signed on to. That makes a number of provisions for tackling mercury emissions to the atmosphere, for uh, using best practices in industrial processes that use mercury or trying to replace mercury uh, uses in in various manufacturers processes. So for example, the polymer industry that manufactures PVC in one of the initial steps in in vinyl chloride monomer production, they use mercury in that process. And so there's now development of alternative industrial ways to manufacture that without using mercury. And so the Minamata Convention is really a way of promoting those best practices and having countries that are able to provide financial support also to other nations in South America or Africa in terms of also having better mining practices. So moving away from using mercury to process gold containing ore to using other processes as well. So we are doing something about cutting our mercury emissions. And I think it may take maybe a a few decades before we really see drastic declines, but we're heading towards that. And I think that's very encouraging to see. And it's also makes it a very exciting time to be uh, someone studying mercury pollution in the Arctic, because now we get the chance to have our science address and provide information on what's the time frame that we can reasonably expect mercury in fish to be going back down to lower levels or to see what are the impacts of reduced emissions, which regions are seeing more benefits and how fast are, are we seeing declines and, and things like that. I'm not always working on projects of how things are getting worse, but getting sometimes a chance to see uh, and work on projects where we're looking at the recovery of ecosystems.
1: One of the questions I had was just about why you were in this area, but I think that you've already answered that because you said you grew up in the north, right?
0: I have to put a lot of credit to not just being exposed to natural places as a young child, which I think had probably a big influence on why I went into environmental science. So as a family growing up, our typical... Sunday activity was to go on a family hike. And so things like that are certainly important. But I think also from an educational point of view, sometimes it's just the opportunities that are offered to students along the way. And when I was in high school in Whitehorse in grade 11, I participated in a program called Experiential Science where a small group of students, there was only 13 of us, took all our courses together with a single instructor. And we had biology and chemistry and environmental studies, but we also had phys ed and visual arts and all together where the art component was oftentimes doing sketches of specimens or whatever. So it was tied into the biology of it. But because it was this own program carried out outside of the rigid structure of school, we didn't have sort of chemistry period that lasted for 45 minutes Tuesday mornings between 10 and 11, we had tremendous flexibility in the program and so we had access to the labs at the Yukon College so we would spend a whole day uh, once a week in the chem lab, a whole day once a week in the biology lab and some of the phys ed curriculum was doing outdoor activities while we were out collecting samples. And so as part of this program, which is really, for me, was a big eye-opener and solidified my interest in science. We did a month-long road trip where the whole 13 of us plus two instructors piled into a van and we drove down from Yukon to British Columbia and, and Alberta and along the way we stopped at various places to talk to uh, marine biologists and we did sampling in, in intertidal pools and then we traveled inland and towards Alberta and we talked to people people in the forestry industry and conservation biologists and Jasper and that kind of exposure and that kind of experience was very formative for me as well. And so I think that there's a big role to play for educational institutions to kind of put the bug in people and and really make them passionate and really make them connect. Because I think if you don't have that connection to the natural environment, it's really hard to be an environmental scientist, right? And a lot of us in, in Canada live in big cities, right? Like I grew up in a small town, but I live in a big city now. And so it's increasingly harder to connect with the natural environment. But at the same time, I think it's increasingly important to get your dose of nature one way or another to kind of develop that passion. And for me, those various experiences were really huge in dictating where I ended up and in doing you know, science that, that is relevant for the environment and working in, in these remote areas as well. So when I started looking around for places where I could do my PhD and, and potential projects that various professors were working on, and I was kind of drawn to working in alpine and and mound environments because I mentioned the Yukon but the other half of the story is that for the first 12 years of my life I lived in Switzerland so it's either been mounds or vast northern landscapes and so I think I've always had an affinity for that uh, as well but I didn't necessarily seek out to get into Arctic science. It was more the opportunity that was offered to me through my PhD research involved Arctic research. And, and I really liked the project. And as I said, I was initially sort of trying to build an, a bit of an Alpine parallel to, to the Arctic work that was proposed. And, but once I went there, then it was game over. Um, I, I can't really emphasize just how much I've connected with the landscape as well. And uh, going back every summer is one of the, my favorite things about the job. And, and, you know, I've gone to Lake Hazen since 2005 for most years. And every year I still see something different or something new. So it seems like the, the potential to explore and discover is, is phenomenal. And for a scientist, I mean, what else can you ask for?
1: Coming up, Global Perspectives. Igor talks about what it's like being in the Arctic environment, the impact of his work and his plans for Earth Day. I think that there's a lot of people, myself included, we've never been to the Arctic, and maybe we'll never be there in our lifetime. So I was wondering, though, if you could describe what it's like to be there.
0: Absolutely. So I think maybe the first first thing that will strike people when you arrive is just the quiet. You know, like we we get dropped off by Twin Otter and then we unload all our equipment and then, you know, the pilots, you know, get back in the plane, they take off and the plane is, you know, is super loud, but then that hum just disappears in the distance and then it's nothing, right? So... You know, the chirp of the shorebirds and and, and that aside, you know, the wind, and and that's about it. And it's intriguing that even though in some aspects when you go there, it almost feels like winter because it's a lot colder. There's a lot of snow and ice everywhere. Obviously, like the the birds haven't migrated there yet, so things are even quieter and all the sounds are even dampened by the snow. But yet you still get these really bright, really sunny days, and and the sun is always there. It's this very interesting take on winter in some ways yeah Uh, as you might imagine there's not a lot to do once your work day is over and and one of my favorite things to do is to to do these sort of late night hikes and of course they're only late night in quotations because it's twenty four hours of daylight, wow. and so there's lots of hills in, in the area, and it's really nice to just climb a hill and find a good you know viewpoint and sit and listen to the silence and listen to the sound of nature around you. And if you have never been to a place where there's twenty four hours of daylight, that's that tends to have a big impact on people too. For some, it's very energizing. So again, I, I find like it makes me want to go go go, and and you know it could be late at night and I'm still you know, feeling like, oh, I should go for a walk and make the most of this. And for others, I know that it really messes with their sleeping. And so after a couple of weeks, our tents that we sleep in are yellow. So if they don't block out the light. They tend to be quite bright as well. And so that can have an impact. But just sort of sitting there and, and soaking it all in and realizing how vast everything is and thinking for a moment that, you know, on this whole island that's bigger than some countries, there's maybe at that very moment in time, like less than 200 people on that very island. Is humbling in some ways, but it's just, it makes you appreciate the power of nature as well and the beauty of it. And the way that you also get to interact with being immersed there over time is what's really interesting, because the first few days you still sort of carry some of your habits from your day-to-day life in the South. And as the days go and, and transition into weeks, I find you can become even more immersed in the landscape and the area, and, and that's really neat. Something that probably most people can relate to. It's almost when you go on vacation and it takes you a couple of days to really, like... Get
1: in vacation Get mode. in <laughs>
0: vacation mode, and it's the same thing. It takes a little bit of time, and then you get in full sort of, like, arctic mode a little bit and you know you start to notice all the little things and the blooming of the flowers or you know that herd of muskox that's sort of passing to and fro behind camp every couple days or typical visit from the wolves as well when we get there they usually sense our arrival and within a couple days we'll kind of come and check out you know what we're all about and then leave us alone and check in on us maybe once a week it almost seems like every once in a while they just kind of come by and see what we're up to and keep an eye on things and so
1: and there are flowers that are blooming
0: yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's you know there's lots of they're very small, but they can be very colorful. So purples and yellows and whites. So Mountain Haven and Dwarf uh, uh, Fireweed and uh, Arctic Poppies and and so the the tundra does really have a surprising amount of life in many ways. And so a ton of shorebirds and Arctic terns are these a really annoying because if your sampling site happens to be somewhat close to their nesting. Uh, area. They're very aggressive in, in protecting their territory and they'll, you know, dive bomb you. But at the same time, they're fascinating because there are these birds that will migrate to the Arctic. And then when they leave, they'll migrate all the way to the Antarctic. So they're always sort of chasing the polar summer uh, and, and travel these huge distances and, and so very uh, very intriguing and so the opportunities to, to see wildlife and whether it's snowy owls or or muskox or wolves or even though highly charismatic and i'm sure most people would kind of put that at the top of their list of arctic animals to to have a chance to see polar bears we we're usually happier when we don't see them uh, so yeah. we're pretty far from the coast so we're we te- we're not in polar bear habitat but every once in a while they will travel from one site to another and they'll come through our area and. So two springs ago, we saw a, a mom and two cubs. Again, one of the quirks of going to the Arctic, you're squeezing in as much as you can in, in a short amount of time that you have available. And, and because of the costs and the logistics that are involved, we really try to, to get the most out of things. And in this particular instance, we were filtering in our lab hut water samples we'd collected and it must have been one or two in the morning and one of the students stepped out and and was like oh there's a polar bear and I thought she was you know having a joke and and we stepped out and sure enough there was a polar bear just kind of coming towards camp and so we, we roused the others that, were, that had already gone to bed. And, but yeah, there was enough of us that the bear wasn't really interested in, in coming in uh, too close. Yeah, so I, I mean, those kinds of things are very unique and, and at a whole other level. I mean, scientifically, this, the work is very interesting. But even just from a, a point of view of a personal life experience, I mean, it's a very fascinating place to get the chance to visit.
1: How long are you there for when you go?
0: It really changes quite a bit. I think I've spent as much as seven weeks there at a time, yeah. and sometimes it's as short as a week. That's not the typical, but it, there's been instances where we've gone to set up instruments at the beginning of the season, and we just we did all the setup, we left, and then came back later in the year to, to collect all the data from the instruments and do further field sampling as well. Uh, if we go in, in May and early June, then the landscape is all snow covered there's a couple, you know, one and a half to two meters of ice on the lake and the plane will land on the lake ice. And because usually that means we have to bring more heating fuel and we'll travel to different sites on snowmobile, uh, we have less space on on a twin otter plane. And so we'll usually collect enough samples in in a couple weeks to to fill the plane for the way out. So they tend to be somewhat shorter trips and, and the longer trips tend to be in July when it's the growing season and and we're hiking around to all our different sites and doing transacts along glacier-fed rivers or or sampling various lakes and ponds and tundra vegetation and and looking at exchange of greenhouse gases between lakes or tundra and the atmosphere or or things like that. So the summer field seasons tend to be a little bit longer because we don't necessarily need to bring as much material equipment with us. And so it allows us to, to have a little bit more time there.
1: I think you've touched on this a lot, but it is a question that I like to ask. But what do you feel is the biggest impact of your work?
0: I'd like to think that there's multiple layers to to that. There's a, an academic impact, so trying to produce the best science that we can. And fortunately, some of this work and the work I spent quite a bit of time chatting about with respect to climate change at Lake Hazen uh, was published in a higher profile journal, Nature Communication. And so in that sense, I think we were having a... scientific or academic impact, getting some of this work to a broader audience and some recognition for the importance of these issues and providing the kind of data and evidence that highlights the impacts of climate change and and the links between, you know, human activities and and climate change. And and again, how sort of our actions, no matter where you are in the world, will will have impacts in, in places that we would like to think are perfectly pristine and, and untouched. Like, as I said, I'd like to think that there's also other impacts in terms of, you know, using the the beauty and charismatic nature of the Arctic to help the general public connect to some of the science as well, right? To, you know, use as examples in the classroom and, and get, uh, students and that as you say a lot of will never travel to the arctic but to bring some of these concepts and issues to life a little bit and and try to influence uh, or, or have an impact on students and, and the broader general public as well and, and not just work with sort of these academic blinders on in some ways and In many respects, working in the Arctic is great for that because there's a lot of push to do community consultation and and do science that is also relevant to to northern people and Inuit people. And a lot of the contaminant work that we do do in the Arctic is certainly motivated by that. We've done some projects where we've set up monitoring programs at at various communities where local people will go out and, and take, for example, seawater samples that they'll ship down south that we can then used to, to build a better record or understanding of how ocean currents are moving, you know, not just mercury, but also you know, some of my collaborators at, at Environment Canada look at synthetic uh, organic chemicals. so things that we use as flame retardants in, in building materials or things that are waterproofing agents in, in clothing or you know grease repellents in food packaging. and also there's a whole suite of different things. But trying to involve more people, and, and trying to, to address questions that are relevant to, to Inuit and, and Northern people is also, I think, another way that we can try to have a bit more of an impact, that it's not just purely academic and, and something that only other scientists will care about.
1: Yeah. And I'm timing this uh podcast to come out in time for Earth Day, and I just wondered if there's anything that you do in particular for Earth Day, or anything that's related to Earth Day, or if you have suggestions for what we could do to have less of an impact on the environment.
0: Right, so... I mean, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a lot of, you know, really neat initiatives that are meant to promote awareness. And so, you know, like, turn off all your appliances and, you know, like, don't use electricity for an hour or or those kinds of ideas, I think, are neat because, not necessarily because of the impact that that will have for only, like, one hour, but I think because of raising awareness. And what I like to think a good use of Earth Day is to use that as a chance to set aside a little bit of time to reflect, I think. And everyone is so busy, and I'm certainly guilty of that as well. But to, to take a few minutes and, and think about what are the small changes that we can make that may have a positive influence. And certainly if we think about climate change and how we're going to tackle that and things like carbon taxes, has become very much a political issue. And so it means there's a lot of room for public discourse, but also just for people to talk about something these things amongst each other and to your neighbors. And I think, as I said, for me, Earth Day is really the chance to take a few moments and think about, you know, what else I can do differently. And and some of those changes can be really small, and but it could be sort of no matter on how much of a rush I am, rinse my recycling before I head out the door, you know, or, you know, just little things like that, or think about when I need or don't need to commute in and what my commuting options might be. And sustainability is, is something that we're more and more interested. Interested in, And not only here at UTM, actually, where there's a whole program on sustainability management, but in general, I think we're kind of seeing it as this target to aim for that as a society is something that we need to be striving for. And I think that's important. It's still, as you say, I think for a lot of people, it's not necessarily immediately obvious what they can do, but Small changes will add up if enough people participate in them. And so some of the things, for example, for me, as I said, sometimes when I I stop and think your choice to eat meat, for example, and I've had this conversation with multiple people and some people are very passionate about this. If you care about the environment, the only way that you can not be dishonest with yourself is to be vegetarian. And my argument has also been, well, you can make that, but how many people are you going to win over? And that may be, you know, like one in 20. And is that as big of an impact as if you tried to make the argument that How's about you cut down your meat intake by only 30%, yeah. but we get, you know, 90% of the people to buy in. That's a smaller incremental change that because there's more buy to it can have a bigger impact. And realizing the power of small changes, but also, as I said, realizing the influence that, you know, casting a vote in a federal or provincial election will have as well in terms of the, the direction that we're heading in. In some of my courses, this kind of thing comes up where as a scientific community, we've decided... We should try to limit warming to no more than a degree and a half and certainly less than two degrees because we think those are the thresholds after which we're really going to start to see large negative impacts from climate change. But to meet those targets, we essentially have to get to carbon neutral scenarios by like 2050. The discrepancy between that and where we are now, where we're still at a point where we're saying, "Wow, well, we have a long way to go yet. It's like anything else. The sooner you tackle a problem, the easier it is. And the longer you wait, the bigger of a task you leave for yourself to do, right? And so, as I said, in some cases, it could be small changes like just maybe using an app that tells you about your electricity consumption at different times of day and gives you some tips for how you may reduce your electricity consumption, or it could be about taking a longer think about how you want to cast your vote in an election, make the environment a big enough issue in your priorities.
1: I just wanted to thank you so much for uh, your time today, Igor. It was great listening to you uh, speak about your work.
0: Well, you're most welcome. Yeah, I I mean, I hope, you know, we kind of got across some of the the, the issues and, and things that you were interested in and uh, that through my various ramblings, I didn't lose, you know, people along the way with, with various ideas and terminology. But yeah, it was it was very interesting to chat with you.
1: Thank you. I would like to thank everyone for listening to today's episode of View to View. I would like to thank my guest Igor Lenhair from the Department of Geography at U of T Mississauga for telling us about his northern research and for painting a picture of what life is like in the Arctic. For further resources, please see his website, which we link to from our website and Soundcloud pages, for more information including a video on his work. I would like to thank the Office of the Vice Principal of Research for their support and those who have provided feedback or helped to promote you to view Lastly, and as always, thank you to the musical Tim Lane for his tunes and support. Thank you!